Every once in a while, I catch our old dog. She's almost 10 years old now. In our backyard, staring off into space, a kind of a unfocused look in her eyes. And I wonder what in the world she's thinking about. Uh, one of the things I know she isn't thinking about is the meaning of life. Uh, dogs don't sit around and think about what the concept of dogness means. Uh, she doesn't wonder, where did I come from? And what is my duty while I'm here? And, and what is my ultimate destiny? You know, dogs are more interested in, in what life provides than what life means. But that's not true of us. We human beings very often think about what life means. Who am I? What am I here for? What, what's my duty? What's my, what's my destiny? Where did I come from? Where, where, where am I going? Oh, those are questions that occasionally come up from our self-conscious. We, we don't want to think about these things. We have to. Someone or something just keeps pushing us, pushing them up into our conscious thinking, and we begin to reflect upon who we are and, and what we're here for. It's both our blessing and our, and our curse. And the problem with those questions, who am I and where am I going, those sorts of things, is that apart from revelation, apart from some news from outside of us, there's simply no answers to those questions. The answers just lead to more profound questions, or the questions just lead to more profound questions and confusion and ultimately into a bunch of cul-de-sacs. There's just no, no answers to those questions. And the thing that plugs us the most, perhaps, is why should I work and endure a, a, a host of frustrations when one of these days I'm going to die? You know, that, that, that's our fate. One of these days, we're, we're all going to end up under the ground, pushing up daisies, just a little heap of compost. And we wonder, what's it all about? What, what's it for? Is, is there something that will somehow give meaning and substance to my, uh, to my life? Uh, Dilbert's colleague, Ratbird, uh, Ratbird, wanders into his little cubicle and he says, You know what's funny? I'll tell you what. You're working hard, hard I'm doing nothing, in a hundred years we'll both be dead. And Dilbert says, you may not need to wait that long. <laughs> Eric Fromm, the uh, psychoanalyst, once made the comment that given the complexities, perplexities of, of life, the question is not why people go insane, but why don't more people go, go crazy? Uh, he says, most of us avoid this outcome, that is insanity, by compensatory mechanisms like the overriding routine of life, conformity with the herd, the search for power, prestige, money, dependence on idols. All these compensatory mechanisms can maintain sanity provided they work up to a point. What Fromm is saying is that our thoughts about life and death are so overwhelming they're so powerful that we have to find a way to protect ourselves from them. That's what's behind this crazy, frantic quest for money, power, prestige, fame, success. That's why our efforts, whether they're pursuing a Ph.D. in, 
in physics or getting a black belt in karate have such a compulsive feel uh, about them. We become single-minded and obsessive in our pursuit so we can forget. So our anxiety becomes less, less oppressive. Now, these projects, these works that we engage in are what Frome called compensatory mechanisms. They're what Jeremiah called cisterns. Now, I want you to turn with me, please, to the second chapter of Jeremiah. And let me give you a little bit of background on this prophet, though I'm sure you know him well. Uh, Sixth century prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, called a minister to time, and the whole nation was sliding into moral chaos. Ministered during the reign of Josiah, who was a very good king, and then through the last four kings of Judah, who were the, some of the worst people who ever lived. He spent 40 years trying to call his people back to repentance, and at the end of his life, they killed him. I often say to these beleaguered uh, pastors that we work with, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But that was the way they rewarded Jeremiah for 40 years of faithful ministry. When Jeremiah was very young, his father, who was Hilkiah the priest, was rummaging around in a storeroom in the temple. And he uncovered a book, a scroll. And when he enrolled it, he discovered it was the Bible. It had been lost. Nobody had, had read it in years, decades. A number of years ago, Carolyn and I were in Kansas City. I was there for a navigator uh, conference. We were talking about discipleship and and uh, businessmen came, businessmen and women came from all over Kansas City to a meeting in a downtown church. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't think any of them would have their Bibles along since they were coming from work. So I wanted to have them use the few Bibles in the church. But when I went into the auditorium, there were no Bibles in the rack. So I went downstairs to find the church secretary. And I said, excuse me, there seem to be no uh, Bibles in the racks. Can you tell me where they are? She thought for a minute. She said, well, we used to have Bibles in the racks. She said... I think they may be down in the storeroom. So uh, they sent the janitor down. Sure enough, down there under, under layers of dust, there were boxes of Bibles. And I took some men down there, and we brought them up and put them back in the racks. Well, this is what had happened in Jeremiah's day. The Bible had been stored away and covered with dust. Nobody was studying it. Nobody was reading it. Hilkiah found it, and he began to devour it. And he gave it to his son, Jeremiah, who was very young, his teenager, or late adolescent probably at that time. And Jeremiah began to read it. He was enchanted with it. He'd never read the Bible before. The way he puts it later uh, in his book, he said, Your word was found, and I ate it. I devoured it, and it was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And, And he began to listen to what the word said, and he began to respond in obedience to it, and he began to teach it wherever he went. Now, what we have in Jeremiah 2 is Jeremiah's first sermon. And believe me, he does quite well for a beginner. I've heard some first sermons before. I've even preached one. It's pretty awful. This is a good one. Jeremiah 2. And I'm not going to read the entire sermon, but I want to read just one section from it. Beginning with verse 10. Cross over to the coast of Katim. Uh, Katim is a Phoenician colony on, on, on the island of Cyprus. It's off to the west. And look, send to Kedar. Uh, the, the Kedarites were an Arab tribe off to the east. So he's saying you go from the west to the east. 
And observe closely and see if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Never. Not in the history of the whole world. Pagan people added idols to their pantheon or added gods to their pantheon, but they never swapped gods. But that's what Jeremiah said they've done. You've changed your gods. My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. My people have committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Living water is a Hebrew expression, a Semitism for running water, fresh water. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two evils, forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two very powerful metaphors. Jeremiah, as I mentioned before, we looked at his metaphor, the potter and the clay was a master it's symbolism. He knows how well it communicates. And here he draws a picture of men and women digging cisterns in the ground. Now, you know what a cistern is. It's a well, basically, to collect rainwater runoff. Uh, normally these things are driven down into solid rock and they're sort of pear-shaped, uh, small opening at the top and larger at the bottom. And they were either, either dug into solid rock or if it was in softer dirt or more porous uh, uh, rocks, they would uh, line the interior with plaster so that it would, it would hold water. It's hard work, very hard work. Uh, when my father, uh, when I was living in Texas, my father and I once dug a well, first and last well I'll ever dig. Uh, hard work. In Texas, you have this little, little layer of black dirt, it's called gumbo, and right underneath it is layer after layer of what they call Austin chalk. And you have to pick your way through it and dynamite your way through it. It took us all summer to dig that hole in the ground. And when we finally got it dug, I swore up and down, I'm never going to dig another well, no matter how long I live. But see, that's the picture that he portrays for us. Now, picture yourself digging a cistern. Here you are, swinging a pick, crowbar, working your way down through solid rock. Other people are out playing golf, swimming. Partying, having fun with their friends, taking their families on vacations. There you are, working your way down through the, through the rock. From dawn to dusk, all through the summer, under the blazing sun, turns the cistern into a kiln. There you are, it's hard, dirty, sweaty labor. Digging your hole in the ground, investing the best years of, of your life. Uh, in, in the winter, it's freezing cold. You're still down there working. Finally, finally, you, you crawl out of your cistern and you look at this hole in the ground on which you've lavished your life and you sit back and wait for it to fill and the doggone thing springs a leak. And you learn what every one of your neighbors know or will know, that cisterns, no matter how well constructed, Inevitably leak. It's only a matter of time. See, Frome said our projects work only to a point. They always cease to work at some point. But you know what we do at that point? So, well, I'll just take this thing back to the drawing board. 
I'll work a little harder. I'll work a little longer. I'll work a little more intelligently. I'll get a graduate degree in hydrology. I'll figure this thing out. I'll work in another place. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to build a cistern that that will hold water. But after a while, reality begins to settle in. And there's a great emptiness that descends upon us. Jeremiah says in another place, you're empty because you're giving yourself... To empty things. Every enterprise becomes meaningless. Every effort, a futile attempt to, to prolong the inevitable. And finally, we, we see our fate in our death. That's when uh, Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, says we experience the, the state of bitter despair that he describes as a sickness unto death. Nothing matters anymore. We just don't care. That's when people begin to do strange things. They take their lives. Men leave their wives, run off with an 18-year-old mushroom grower, and they do weird things because they're in this terrible state of despair. You may remember Robert Ringer. He wrote that greed-inspiring book, Looking Out for Number One. Um, in it, he has a very interesting paragraph. I want to read it to you. In my early 20s, I had the good fortune to be introduced to a wealthy old Wall Streeter. A Wall Streeter is used here as an investor who spends each day watching the ticker tape and maneuvering money in and out of stocks at hopefully opportune times. Harold Hart epitomized the typical Wall Street success story. Though struggling as a youngster, he was now a millionaire many times over. He had it all. The biggie came one evening when I came to visit Mr. Hart to do a deal. When I arrived, I found him resting tranquilly in his favorite chair with servants waiting on him hand and foot. I sat there a while waiting as he stared blankly into space. Finally, he muttered, you know, nature has played a great hoax on man. You work all your life, go through an endless number of struggles, play all the petty little games, and if you're lucky, you finally make it to the top. Well, I made it a long time ago, and you know what? It doesn't mean a thing. I tell you, nature has made a fool of man, and I'm the biggest fool of all. Here I sit in poor health, exhausted from years of playing the game, well aware that time is running out, and I keep asking myself, now what, genius? What's your next brilliant move going to be? All that time I spent worrying, maneuvering, it was meaningless. Life is nothing but a big hoax. We think we're so important, but the truth is we're nothing. See, that's a sickness unto death. Ringer tells that story because he believes he's going to avoid the fate that, that befell that old tycoon. But my money would, would go on the fact that still today, if he's still living... He's still out there working on his cistern because enough is never enough. You can never amass enough money to feel that you've arrived. There isn't enough money in the world. And that's, that's the explanation between, between, uh, behind these men and women who, who have more money than they could ever spend in an entire lifetime, and yet they continue as driven men. Now, I wonder, for example, what, what keeps Bill Gates going? He can't spend all that money. Why, why is he so driven? Well, he's out there working on his cistern. Eh? He's still trying to dig a hole in the ground that will hold water, that will provide the satisfaction that he needs. Uh, I, most of you know uh, Walton's book, The uh, Complete Angler, Isaac Walton. Walton was a Christian, you know, and... Uh, and, 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 and though most of it is about fishing, he intersperses these wonderful little comments, biblical comments about life. He's a very profound man, really. 
And he says this, there are money-getting men, men that spend all their time in getting and then in anxious care to keep it, men that are condemned to be rich and then are always busy and discontented. And interesting. Enough is never enough. You've always got to have more. I think I've mentioned before that I saw Ted Turner interviewed on Barbara Walters' show a number of years ago. And at one point, he, he, he just got this very wistful look on his face. And he looked off into space and he, and he said, you know, Barbara, success is an empty bag, but you don't know it till you get there. Emily Dickinson said the same thing. Uh, success is only sweet to those who've never succeeded. Sweet success is an oxymoron, doesn't exist. Success can only leave us with this ravaging thirst for more and a growing sense of bitterness and despair. We have followed emptiness, Jeremiah says, and we have become empty. Now let me tell you, there's a reason for that emptiness. It's not an accident. God is the one who's, who causes our cisterns to leak. He thwarts us, he frustrates us because he knows that we can only find ourselves in him. He will deny us until there's nothing left but God. Now, uh, it may be that you're a well digger. You've been laboring long to find success in, in wealth, in power, in your family, in women, in men, in something other than God. May I tell you that, that nothing will ever satisfy your heart until you come to Jesus. You'll hunger and thirst in vain. You see, that's why there's another side to this picture. Jeremiah doesn't leave us with that picture of a leaking cistern. There, there, there is another picture, and that is of a spring that, that flows, a copious spring that, that is available to us. A spring of living water, Jeremiah describes it. Rising from hidden depths, pouring into our hearts, always flowing in abundance, always available. Uh, James Taylor just came out with a new CD. Uh, Taylor is certainly not a Christian. I, I, I don't know where he is spiritually. He's probably into some new Near East uh, religion or New Age religion. But uh, occasionally there are little, little glimpses of truth in his, in his songs. I think of him like Gamaliel, you know, in the New Testament, Rabbi Gamaliel, kind of an unwitting truth-sayer. Every once in a while, a little light begins to shine, and yet he never seems to take that next step. In one of his songs, there are a couple of lines that go like this. There's a river running under your feet. Under this house, under this street, straight from the heart, ancient and sweet, on its way back home. That's what I want you to know. There's the river of God's love is flowing under your, under your feet. You put down your pick and your shovel, your futile efforts to try to find some meaning in this hole in the ground that you're lavishing your time and energy upon and, and stoop down and drink. John says in the book of Revelation, whoever's thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And you see, this is true of non-Christians, but it's true of Christians as well. Because all of us are inclined to receive the grace of God in vain, as, as Paul puts it. 
And that phrase refers to believers. He's addressing himself to a church in Corinth. In Corinth. And it's easy for us to think that the meaning is going to be found in something. We're going to find it in our vocation. We're going to find it in marriage. We're going to find it in our children. We're going to find it in retirement. We're going to find it in some lifestyle that we, that we yearn for. We're going to find it in the shape or size of our bodies. We're going to find it in our appearance. We're going to find it somewhere. They're all empty cisterns that can bring no satisfaction. The only satisfaction that any of us can ever find is in God himself. And that's where joy and delight are found. And a man come up to me in the fellowship some months ago and, and said, he's literally been stripped of almost everything. And he said, you know, you don't know how much you have until all you have is God. And that's what Jeremiah is urging upon his people and what he's urging upon us. Drink of that fountain, that river, it's drink. Copious, lavish supply that's available to us, under our feet, accessible to all. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that picture of a, of a river flowing under our feet. It's another metaphor that intrigues me. The um, Bible's full of that symbolism. David describes God as a, a river that gladdens the heart of, of his people. Isaiah says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. That's where you find satisfaction. A number of other Old Testament, New Testament references to to, uh, God being a spring of living water available to us. But there are three that to me are most compelling. One is found in the Old Testament, two in the New. First one is is in Ezekiel 47. You don't need to turn there. Uh, We don't have time to look at it in detail, but I I want to tell you what Ezekiel saw. And that's an important verb, because you need to see what Ezekiel saw. A picture is worth at least a thousand words, and sometimes far more. And this is a case where this picture is is, is worth more than any exposition that I could give. In fact, I, I, I'm always reluctant to teach on it, because sometimes when you try to explain things like, like this, you explain them away. But, but here's the picture. Ezekiel's wandering around the temple. It's not the real temple. The temple wasn't even standing in his day. It had been destroyed. It's a symbolic temple. He saw this in the vision. He's getting a tour of the temple. It's an angel showing him around. And uh, as they're wandering around on the, on the east side of the, uh, uh, of the temple mount, there's a great wall there uh, that buttresses the, uh, the uh, support structure underneath the temple. And he, and he sees a little tiny stream flowing out over the threshold of the gate and down into the Kidron Valley. Just a little tiny stream. We call it a creek here in Idaho. It wasn't very big. And uh, he traces the stream to its source. And guess where it begins? It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And finally, right underneath the altar, the brazen altar, which is the place where the the lamb was slain, the place of sacrifice. This is the origin of this little spring. This little artesian spring just kind of bubbles up from the ground. Pristine, pure, clear, cool water flows through the floor of the court and then out over the threshold. And, and Ezekiel uh, is taken by the angel and they, they walk along by the stream. And the angel says, wait, wait out into the stream. And it's ankle deep. Angel takes him another quarter of a mile. <clears throat> says, wait, wait out into the stream again. It's knee deep. Takes him a little further. About a quarter of a mile on down into the Kidron Valley, down toward the Arba, that, that great desert 
there to the east of Jerusalem and, and toward the Dead Sea. And, and Jeremiah sees trees beginning to spring up. And where There were salt flats before. There, there are now meadows and birds and flowers. And there's life. It's beautiful. His breath is taken away by this scene. And, and the angel says, now wait here. And he waits and it's up over the top of his waiters. And, and he says, now... Takes him another quarter of a mile and he says, Wade here. And, and, and it's over his head. He's dog paddling out in the thing. And he says, Ezekiel, what do you see? <laughs> the angel says, what do you see? What do you see in your mind? Well, it's a picture of God's lavish love. See, there are no streams like this on earth. There's no analogy for this stream. I've walked a lot of Idaho's streams, but I've never seen one like this. There are no tributaries flowing into it, and yet it gets bigger, it gets wider, it gets deeper. It's just a picture of God's love. See, the more you experience of Him, the deeper and wider that love becomes. You know the song we sing, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Can't get enough of it. It's there to slack your thirst. Malcolm Muggeridge said this about that stream. I may, I suppose, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me on the street. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of inland revenue. That, that's uh, in the UK, that's their IRS. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It may happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg of you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they're nothing, less than nothing. A positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. What are you thirsty for? Fame, success, power, visibility. All of those thirsts will leave you hungering and thirsting for something more. The only thing that will banish thirst is God himself. Let me tell you another story. Uh, Jesus was making his way through Samaria, comes to a little well, uh, he's been walking all day. It's blazing hot. Sits down by the side of the well. Sends the disciples into the city to buy hamburgers. And, and he's, he's, he, he seats himself there on the well to rest. Sees this woman walking through the haze. Water pot on her shoulder. Tradition says her name was Fotine. We don't really know if that was her name, but I, I like to give her a name because it makes her a little more real. So Fotine comes to the well. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. Jesus' question, would you give me a drink, sounds awfully abrupt, unless you understand that the verb suggests that a conversation had been going on. This is simply one segment of an extended chat. He'd been talking with this woman for a while. And he says, would you give me a drink? And, And she reacts to that. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jewish men didn't talk to women, period. And Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. And they didn't drink after Samaritans. Her statement 
Jews don't associate with Samaritans is really they don't have anything in common. They don't share the same drinking utensils. That's the idea. But I'll just cut through all of that right to the heart of this, this woman. And he, and he, and he says, would, would you give me a drink? And Jesus answered and said, if you just knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, C.S. Lewis says this is Jesus double baiting his hook. Just kind of a symbolic, indirect, off the, uh, off the wall approach to her to, to draw her in. And then he said to her, anyone who drinks this water, listen to this, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Potin said, give me that water. We have to come to that point in our lives. You may be like Fotine. She'd been through a number of marriages, none of which had worked, and she was living with a man. She was an outcast. She was a pariah. That's why she was there in the middle of the day. The good people, good women of Samaria would have nothing to do with it. She was a bad woman. Jesus didn't care. He knew that underneath all of her badness was that hunger for something more that had driven her. She would find it in a man somewhere. She couldn't find it until she found him sitting on the well. And then she knew that her dreams had come true. He was the one that could satisfy. Tell you one other story, and then we've got to stop. The Feast of the Tabernacles, a special occasion in Jewish uh, culture. It's a time when they remembered the years that they pup-tented with God out in the wilderness. Tens of thousands of Jews would gather in Jerusalem, and they would build these little... little, brush arbors, and they would camp out. It's a gala occasion, a lot of fun. All the families would gather. It's like a big church picnic and or a campground, a camping, camp meeting or whatever. And uh, uh, Jesus didn't go. Everybody expected him to go. All of his family did. He didn't go until the middle of the week. He wandered in, and, and he started teaching, and people didn't want to hear him. They didn't gather around him like they did before. So we don't know what he did, whether he quit teaching or whether he continued on, but at least they weren't listening. But at the end of the feast, there was a custom based on the Old Testament metaphor of God being a river where they would bring out these huge urns and they would tip them over on their sides and be full of water and they would pour water out on the ground and people would gather around them with their cups to... Uh, to get some of that water and they'd put their faces under it and they'd catch it in their hands and they'd throw it on themselves and on others. And it was a symbolic picture of God being a, a well of water springing up to eternal life, a stream that refreshed and, and rejuvenated and renewed and a wonderful picture. And, and they were shouting and, 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 and enjoying this occasion. And our Lord stood up right in the middle of that ceremony in a loud voice. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow out from within him. Now, the, the, the way this passage is normally translated suggests that Jesus is saying that if you come to him, streams of living water will flow out of you. But I think the verse needs to be punctuated differently. There, there, there was no punctuation in the original text. It was all just a string of words. No commas, no 
colons, no semicolons, no periods, no punctuation at all. I think what he said was this. If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, period. As scripture has said, out of Messiah's innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Because you look in vain in the Old Testament to find a passage that says if you come to Messiah, living water will flow out of you. But there are dozens of passages that say that if you come to him, he is the source of living water. So again, we, we hear our Lord saying that he is that spring of water that satisfies our deepest urges. Now I just want to say again. If you hunger and thirst for anything else but God, you will hunger and thirst in vain. He is that source of satisfaction. Everything else is just an empty cistern. In C.S. Lewis's silver chair, the uh, little girl Jill finds herself, uh, as you know, most of you read the story, she's transported into another land and uh, this happens because of her own pride and, and foolishness. She's lost and she's very thirsty and looking for a stream. And she finds a brook. And alongside the brook is this immense lion. Aslan, a picture of Jesus, symbol of Jesus in the Narnia tales. And uh, Aslan growls and tells her she may come and drink. Uh, Would you mind going away while I drink, said Jill. The lion answered with a look and a very low growl, and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "Do, Do you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I may no, I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. I just want you to know that. That's so important. So important that we say that to those that have not yet found Christ. It's so important that we say it to ourselves over and over again. You will never find yourself in your mate. You will never find yourself... In any love relationship or friendship, you will never find yourself in your children. You will never find yourself even in ministry, as good as all those things are. The only place that you will find yourself is in Christ and in those hidden springs that flow out of Him. So just give yourself to Him. That's what repentance is. It's changing your mind about the way you're going. Instead of trying to find yourself in something other than our Lord, turn And yield yourself to Him and your bodies as instruments of righteousness to Him. Sit at His feet, listen to His word, ask Him to begin to change you into His likeness. Eat and drink of Him. That's where you'll find 
the satisfaction to those longings and yearnings that have plagued you from the very beginning of your life. Let's pray. We all confess, Lord, that we have busied ourselves digging holes in the ground that we think will satisfy us, lavishing our time and energy and love and the best years of our lives trying to find ourselves apart from you. And in retrospect, Lord, we can only thank you for for bringing our efforts to an end, thwarting us, frustrating us, causing all of our energies to, to, to be what they are, futile efforts to try to find something or someone that will give us the satisfaction that you and you alone can provide. We want to come to you and drink deeply of, of that of that stream, stream of love and grace and goodness, courage, everything that we need to make life work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.